1: Hello and welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm Barron's Associate Editor, Eric Savitz. Welcome back again. Uh, Today, my uh, guest, I'm happy to have with me today is Matt Peralt, who's the Director of the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I got the right campus. Yeah. Uh, uh, And probably known to some of our listeners uh, more for his work with New Street Research where he is a policy advisor, and writes uh reports and covers uh tech policy um uh of which there are lots of things to talk about um uh today and so matt thanks for being with us
0: i'm thrilled to be here
1: okay so let's talk about the elephant in the room uh which is a it's a chinese elephant uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and uh you know you've written a lot about what's happened over the last few weeks yeah Uh, there's many more things to come um many more uh uh, goal, uh, goals to, uh, goal lines to cross. And mm-hmm. of course, um, let, let's, let's talk about first, um, uh, what happened. It's now a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a congressional mm-hmm. thing, more than five hours in length, uh, that, uh, involved a grilling of the CEO of TikTok, uh, that, uh, was brutal. Uh, he had no, uh, no fans on the, uh, the house committee that was, uh, interviewing him. Um, and it left many people thinking that maybe a ban of TikTok was what really was going to happen. Um, yeah, skeptical about a ban and tell me about how you would frame both the issue and what the potential outcomes might be.
0: Yeah. So, um, so I guess maybe we could even just start, we can get there by talking a little bit about the hearing. I think you're exactly right that there were no fans in the room. I was surprised a little bit by the East Coast press coverage, kind of the the DC tech press, which seemed to suggest that this was a hearing that was meaningfully different than other tech hearings that have come before it. I testified um, in the House Antitrust, uh, the House uh, Judiciary Committee Antitrust Subcommittee hearing on on tech and antitrust issues, I, I testify as a witness for Facebook. In 2019, I don't remember that hearing going particularly well. It wasn't like there were a lot of questions <laughs> from members about how we were a great American company um, that was clearly not dominant and clearly not engaged in anti-competitive conduct. That that wasn't the nature of the hearing. And I think they actually, the hearings subsequent to that got significantly more aggressive, actually. So the <laughs> hearings like with Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg, for instance, around content moderation issues, I think were pretty hostile. So it wasn't surprising to me that there were no fans of TikTok and that the questions were very aggressive and negative. Um, I was surprised to see the DC tech press, which I think has, again, seen those kinds of hearings um, before in the past, to see them characterize it as such a I thought it seemed like the characterizations were as if it was a really, really a failed hearing by TikTok, as if as if TikTok could have done something different. And of course, you know, there are individual answers, I'm sure, that could have been stronger or different. We can we can talk through some of the weak spots. But in general, to me, it seemed like what you would expect for a hearing with an executive, which is there's not an opportunity to win. The executive is trying not to lose. And I think for the most part, TikTok was able to, to do that. I, I'm not sure that the policy options coming out of it look so different than they do going into it. For people like you and me who are trying to read the sort of between the lines in the hearing and try to see what, is, what are likely policy outcomes right. and what, what is revealed from the hearing, I do think it's the case that it was very clear that from a political perspective, any option less aggressive, um, less stringent than divestment probably seems to be off the table. So you can imagine a spectrum where on one side is no action, on the other is a ban, and I think the part of the question I had going in is where on that spectrum does the is there some possibility of a political consensus around an outcome? And I didn't think anything less than divestment is possible. So, negotiated Sifia's agreement doesn't seem possible. Um, people seem totally disinterested in Project Texas, which and we could talk more about that. But there did not seem to be anyone who was saying hey, I don't like specifics of Project Texas, but let's try to negotiate some stronger provisions. That really wasn't, there was no appetite for that. Project Texas was just sort of dismissed. And so I think the options are then divestment and a ban. And what we've said at New Street is that at least as a matter of first instance, I think a ban is probably not a viable option. And it's not a viable option because it's it's politically really challenging to achieve it. Um, Every TikTok user in the country would be, a ban would cut them off from this product that they enjoy Right. And that would result In I every every back user
1: back. we should we should we should point out right there is a there are 150 million uh, monthly active users um, on on TikTok and and maybe more uh, casual ones so um, it's a sizable proportion of the population um, yeah and and skews not quite as young maybe as people think right I I think there's a perception yeah like. Pre-teens or teens. And-
0: That's right. You know, I mean, I went to work at Facebook in 2011, which was not really early in the company's history. Um, you know, Facebook had been around a while by then, but at that point, a lot of people I talked to about the job were sort of dismissive. They were kind of like, you're going to this company that, you know, where people poke each other. Isn't that, isn't that what you're going to do? You're going to on the policy team of the company that pokes each other. You know, those same people at 2016, after the 2016 election, we're talking about how, you know, Facebook had corroded American democracy. And so, I, I think um, the technologies deserve to be taken seriously. Often young people are the first users, but as we've seen with TikTok to date, you know, more and more people are using the product, including older users and politicians. Right. And so Gino you know, Raimondo said really clearly, and this is a loose paraphrase, but basically like we're alienating every user under 30, every potential voter under 30 if we ban the product. So that to me politically doesn't seem viable. I think the, the, challenging, I, I think the challenge of divestment from TikTok's perspective, is that there's no constituency that's opposed to it, I don't think, or strongly opposed to it. Um, you you know, the people that you're talking about who uh, I was trying to think, like, well, what would the protest look like of TikTok users, you know, dance-ins in the street or something to protest a ban? They, they don't care if the product's owned by Disney or Oracle or Microsoft um, I, I think, it, or Walmart. I, I, think, I think it just doesn't make a, a difference to them as long as they have access to the product. So I think that's challenging from TikTok's perspective. Um, You know, how do you, they can mobilize people against the ban. I think there's a constituency that's opposed. Trying to think through what that looks like in terms of divestment, I think is much more challenging. I I, I just don't think there's a constituency that's opposed.
1: So if you go back to the first time uh, that this whole discussion arose during the Trump administration, uh, we got pretty far down the road on a strategy to potentially not a full divestment, but like a restructuring of the ownership of TikTok. And at the time there were two bidders uh, basically you had Microsoft and then you had sort of a tandem bid between Oracle and Walmart and the uh, the administration chose uh, the, the Oracle approach, which um, kind of ties into Project Texas, uh, which is uh, this this idea that um, um, all of the US TikTok data, Would be stored on servers owned by Oracle, um, and uh, controlled by. I think uh, he said Chow said at the meeting uh, or at the hearing, you know, an American company controlled by Americans on American soil or something along those lines. uh, Oh, just part of of the Project Texas story. And uh, but that that deal never, uh, of course, as we all know, didn't ever like reach fruition. We had it. We had a change in administrations. Uh, Cytheus has been reviewing its position on this for almost the basically the entirety of the Biden administration. And yeah, uh, and and that now does (laughs) not that now seems like a non-starter as an approach. And I I wonder if that there are lessons in that. Uh, in the way things unfolded, there for what divestment might look like now,
0: for what divestment might look like, um, right. yeah, I mean, so well, so one thing, I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch there. One is that the Trump, in this is worth, I think, paying attention to both in terms of thinking about what happened might happen in the future in courts, and also then what policymakers might do to avoid the same outcome. So the first Trump ban was struck down in a procedural hearing. On the basis of the Berman Amendment, which is an amendment to IEPA, which is broad national security authority that the president holds, um, the amendment restricts the president's ability to, um, to take action against informational materials. So the idea was really you know, that the president's national uh, security authority should be cabined in some way when it comes to um, things that implicate free speech. And obviously, the First Amendment is a separate protection, but this is a statutory protection um, that was designed to try to address this issue. And so the court that that tossed out the ban did it using this statutory protection. It didn't do it on a, on First Amendment grounds. I think it sort of alluded to the First Amendment components of the challenge to the ban, but it didn't use the First Amendment principally to strike it down. Um, one of the legislative options on the table is a, a bill called the Restrict Act that Senators um, Mark Warner and John Thune have introduced. And the reason that that is important, there are a whole bunch of reasons I guess that, that's important. Um, one is that it would supersede AIPA, and therefore the Berman ad- Amendment wouldn't come into play. So that restriction on the president's authority would sort of go out the window and the Commerce Department could actually do things like divest and or, or ban the technology. Um, so um, so I, I think that's an important develop. I, that's an important component of it. The second is, you know, there are various different legislative proposals that would basically take action just against TikTok. And I think that's problematic as a sort of Policy, but from a policy best practices standpoint, it's also potentially constitutionally problematic because a bill, bill of attainder restrictions. You can't um, you can't pass legislation that's essentially designed to just punish one individual company. And right. so the Warner Thune bill is broader. It sets up a process at the Commerce Department to investigate whether there's national security risk, and then and then gather evidence, publish information about about the evidence that's gathered, and then take appropriate action. That feels to me to be much more consistent with what we would think of as policy best practices. It sets up a process to review it, the issue and to actually try to determine if there's national security risk. I think people are understandably some people are understandably skeptical about whether the the outcome of that has already been decided. Whether, you know whether the legislation essentially was introduced solely for the purpose of banning or requiring right. divestment of TikTok. And obviously, that I, I think that that pushes in a more problematic direction. But the idea of introducing legislation to set up a process seems to make a lot of sense.
1: So one of the interesting things that's happened since the hearing, you know, as, as we were saying, they they really yeah. had defenders of the hearing, but they've kind of found a couple of defenders after the hearing. And what's interesting to me is that defenders like talk about very strange bedfellows, like you've got. Uh, AOC on one uh, on one hand, you know she she posted a TikTok, her first TikTok, which was basically yeah. TikTok, and then uh, last week you saw an op-ed by Rand Paul of all people um, uh, uh, writing in I forget which newspaper, um, uh, basically asserting that this would be a, a politically stupid uh, on the Republican side to come up against yeah. A- the for the demographic demographic reason we talked about before but also made the case that this would be like using the chinese communist party playbook on an american uh on american soil and that you're better than that and you know he kind of made the point like i don't really like TikTok, but but i wouldn't ban it and i i wonder if that feels like an outlier sensibility um, in both cases or whether maybe there's going to be some shift of sentiment that says hold on, like there are First Amendment problems with doing this?
0: Yeah. Well, the First Amendment, I mean, first of all, I guess I guess there are two issues on that latter point. One is, is there a legislative shift? And the second is, what do the courts do? Because you know, Congress or the administration can take action. And if they take the kind of aggressive action that they are considering, there will inevitably be a First Amendment challenge, and then a court will resolve it. So um, I, I think it is likely that, at least on that that aspect, that courts will have the last word. I'm not a first amendment scholar, so I, sh- I shouldn't go deep into it, but I think divestment presents fewer first amendment issues. If, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of a user's ability to speak, a ban cuts off a, a speech avenue. And so therefore certainly there's a, it leaves room for courts to to examine it on a first amendment grounds. Divestment doesn't, isn't really restricting speech. And so there may be any number of different challenges that TikTok would bring, but I think that's a, the first amendment probably is a more challenging one for the company. Um, I do think, I guess, I think it's helpful that there's a, you know, a robust debate around the issue. I think it's good that different people are coming out with different perspectives. It certainly makes sense to me, actually, that Rand Paul, given his libertarian leanings, would be more in the direction of being concerned about the use of government power, potentially with a relatively um, weak factual basis, I think, for making that determination. I mean, there are a lot of people who have said, clearly, there's potential risk here, but do we actually have a factual record that supports taking an action like banner divestment, which is a significant remedy? And 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 I'm somewhat skeptical of that, although I think one of the one of the helpful things about the legislation that Mark Warner and John Thune have proposed is that it gives us a path to developing a factual record. And so I think there are there are people, it seems like in the national security community who seem to think that there's evidence sufficient to support that kind of remedial action. And if that's the case, then I think a process that brings it to the fore is a is a positive one. And then there's actually like, maybe just one other point that I'd make, like, I've now been through the cycles of hearings multiple times and the members of Congress who are actually responsible for regulating industries, uh, having aggressive messaging to companies, but not actually regulating the industries. So I I sort of, I, I sort of have this point of view that's like, if I was in a witness chair today, I'd say like, you seem really angry about the absence of regulation. That's actually your job. It's not my job. So <laughs> let's see you come out and regulate. Like, why are you angry at me about this, well, what's, what,
1: what's interesting about that is um, is the most recent hearing echoed some of the things that uh, that your old boss um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg said when he's testified. Yeah. That bring on the regulation. We, by all means, you should add. We should have more privacy regulation, in particular. And and I think it's interesting that. One thing that did happen at the hearing is a few people, a few members of the committee used the moment as an excuse to talk about um, their own uh, sort of tech regulatory um, yeah. uh, agenda. And a few people talked about the need for comprehensive uh, privacy policy um, um, and, uh, there've been a couple of other things and a couple of people mentioned, um, section 230 reform, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, but yeah. I, I do think that was interesting. Now they didn't go so far as to, as to do what, um, uh, like, uh, Senator Paul or, or, um, uh, or representative, ocasio uh, or uh, uh, oh God, I'm making her, missing up her name, um, AOC, AOC, uh, <laughs> says, uh which is that, um, you know, like like we shouldn't be uh we're trying to, to relate this at all. But but uh but it is interesting, right, that um that they there were signs that they have other agenda, like a broader agenda yeah. right, uh-huh. that go beyond um be go, go beyond TikTok. You know, one thing I did want to touch on briefly is one of the, the and you, you kind of alluded to it just a moment ago, which is the, the in in it's it's during the course of the hearing it became apparent that that um on the one hand tiktok is saying we have a solution for privacy yeah. um uh, and privacy and security concerns and the members of the committee were largely saying you're controlled by china and so like they were talking about two different things like they were they they were trying they basically came into the committee and you, you saw this in the prepared remarks uh for the hearing from tiktok they basically said Look, Project Texas addresses the privacy and security concerns of American data, and the members of the committee basically came in and said, "Sir, weren't you prepared by members of the Chinese Communist Party, and aren't you really referring yeah. to them?" And that it, it sets up this sort of uh, strange situation where they're not really responding to the actual concern that the committee seems to have. Yeah, and, and it also feels like that their the nature of their concern. Is that the China the Chinese government will use by uh, use uh, pressure by dance to use TikTok to deliver certain messages or suppress other messages? And I'm not sure there's much evidence of any of that having actually happened. There are a few yeah. like, minor um, kind of uh, examples, but it does not feel like there's any evidence of that. And I'm curious what whether you would agree with that or or how you think about that problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen lots of discussions of potential harms. I think in tech, that's almost a. Um, there's very little value in starting at that point. Like tech, comp- tech. There's a lot of potential for technology to do a lot of problematic things. Talking about its potential seems like you really can come up with. Tons of doomsday scenarios, and there's no company that's regulated just based on its potential. I mean, Google could do lots of stuff that's harmful. Microsoft can do stuff, lots of stuff that's harmful. The question isn't could they; the question is do they. And the FTC, um, I mean, some people, you know, think that enforcement should be stronger. But Section Five of the FTC Act exists in part to say, "Hey, company, you're doing this thing that's really problematic for consumers. It's out of step with what you commit to in your terms of service, and so we're going to take action." Lots of companies under, are under consent decrees pursuant to Section Five. Um, when Facebook was engaged in the Cambridge Analytica incident, it had a big settlement under Section Five, and so that that is a robust tool that can be used when companies behave poorly. Think proactive regulation ro- regulation that governs the sector in the future can be used to deter. Future conduct and to lay out the rules of the road. But I don't think typically we say there's a potential for you to do this harmful thing. Can you prove that it doesn't exist? And if you can't prove that it doesn't exist, then we want to ban you. And so, it, you know, again, I, I don't think of that as policy best practices, but I don't think that's the world we're in. Um, and, you know, it's naive. It, it, I'm showing how naive I am to say that I continue to hope for that world, even though we don't see it. So I think we sort of were in there were sort of three buckets of possibilities for the kind of core substantive frame of the hearing. One was, um, yeah, we've read about Project Texas. It's great. You know, this is a serious effort to govern data flows, to govern the security of the technology. This is fantastic. Obviously, that's a substantive response, I think, but obviously very unlikely. The second was, we see what you've done with Project Texas, and it's insufficient. And, And here are 10, 20, 30, 100 different ways that we need you to improve it. And if you improve it, then we will allow you to continue to operate in the US. And there are an enormous number of details related to Project Texas, where you could see regulators potentially grab a hold and say, you got to do it differently. And that could be that people don't think that Oracle can fulfill its function as a trusted technology partner. So they want a different trusted technology partner or they want to talk to work with multiple trusted technology partners or there are situations in project texas where data can flow out of the u.s and flow to other markets and tiktok at least in my experience other people might have a different view but tiktok i think has been clear about what those instances are the government lawmakers could say we don't like those options we don't like that data can flow out of the u.s in those circumstances we want you to cut it off um tiktok has proposed i think seven Audit monitoring type functions. Um, there are a whole. There's a lot of room there. I think for improvement, improvement around transparency. You could expand the number of monitors. You could adjust what they're able to see and cover. Um, you could you could adjust who they are. So some right. of them are from government. Some of them are third parties. So there's a lot of policy options for sort of robust policy thinking. As a policy person you know i love public policy like that's what i was really excited about i was hoping there'd be a hearing where they'd sort of go back i didn't hear that hearing <laughs> that, that that was not the hearing and you know most people who referenced project texas and there weren't actually a lot of references to it just said like i don't trust it uh, you know this thing isn't enough yeah, there were actually the a
1: couple of people who basically said um you need to change the name of the project because it's like <laughs> right,
0: yeah texas. it's too texas in south texas yeah so project rhode island um and and so so option one is product Texas yay it's great option two okay so you're trying to do something serious here but it's not enough let's let's make it stronger three is like look at who you are we don't trust you and that was really I think the, the, what the hearing was about it was like we don't trust the way you look we don't trust the way you speak we don't trust your identity yeah and and, and that is I think very actually pretty unsettling from a policy perspective, because there's really you get to a point where then it doesn't really matter what the company says. It has to do with the perception of who you are and what the implications of that are. My hope is that I'm wrong about that third bucket and that the skepticism comes from an evidence from from lawmakers having um, visibility into national security data that suggests a level of risk and harm. It might not be evident to me and you um and I, and I think it's possible that that's the case but we didn't really hear specifics along those yeah, lines not, not really any.
1: so i want to touch on uh, so if you make the assumption um that a ban is less likely but they still might impose uh or require um yeah uh, some sort of separation now the chinese so far have not been willing to go in that direction but yeah. Let's assume that they can be persuaded to, that there's a solution that works. Um, yeah. And if you also make the assumption that um, uh, that's, that the private equity and venture capital ownership interests in, in the parent company, in ByteDance, which are mostly American companies, right? Includes like Sequoia and like uh, General Atlantic and funds like that. Yeah. That they can maintain their ownership interest in a post spin version of TikTok, like the amount of money that, Um, That needs to be raised, like probably in order to do that transaction, or to buy out the Chinese interests. I presume seems manageable, but there's only a limited number of companies that you can even name that would either have the financial resources to do it, can win regulatory approval to do it. Talk about those who's left over
0: once you sort of. Whittle down. Yeah, so that's actually not my area of expertise. I would suggest people check out the notes that we've written uh, on it. Dan Salmon, who's our tech equity analyst, has kind of written explicitly about about a range of potential buyers. Um, And so I'd suggest people check that out. I would say the so so two things. One is um, you talked about the sort of idea that the Chinese government would need to approve divestment. So first of all, a couple things. And the hearing that was raised repeatedly. Um, because a Wall Street Journal article came out the morning exactly. of the hearing, saying that the Chinese government would not approve divestment, and it was raised repeatedly in the hearing as a signal of how of, of a coziness between um, between ByteDance and the Chinese right. government. And that I don't know that may or may not be the case, but I do think it's worth just re- reiterating, stressing that if Google was to sell Google Search to Baidu the US government would have an interest in that transaction on export grounds and antitrust grounds. So it's not, it's not really out of step with the norm that the Chinese government would have some interest in that and would and would run it through a regulatory review process. Um, I also think it's important to note that if the Chinese government says no to divestment, then I think a ban becomes much more politically feasible because the the, the Biden administration will not allow there to be the perception that the Chinese government can dictate its national security strategy. And if right. the Chinese government moves in the direction where it starts to feel like that, then I think the politics shift and it would be, will, I think I think it makes it easier politically to execute a ban and also the Biden administration would be more willing to take on those costs. So the odd, the odd, the sort of perverse thing is I think if the Chinese government says no to divestment, then the worst option, presumably from their perspective, I think comes onto the table of a ban. Um, and then the final thing I'd say, and I assume your listeners know more, you know more about this than I do, your listeners know more about this than I do. Um, if anyone has has sort of specifics to share here, I'd encourage you to, um, to please reach out to me. Um, you can find my email on the New Street website or on the UNC website. Um, I am very interested in the mechanics of divestment because I think most people—not your listeners, but most people—sort of think there's this company that owns 100% stake in TikTok, and that company is Chinese, and they will just do a handshake deal with an with this person who's American, and that person will then own TikTok, and it just is that simple that you just take this Chinese thing and you turn it over to an American, and it and it's not it's not that simple. I was. The best recent analogy for this is the CFIUS, um requirement that Grindr, uh, that that the company that had acquired Grindr divest it because it was a Chinese entity. And I read a Reuters piece about that sale that talked about the sort of murkiness of prior ownership and then how the ownership was transferred. And that they're actually in the new entity, there continued to be significant Chinese owners who owned a stake of the new company and it had sort of met the letter of the law, I think from a Cipheus perspective, but obviously is more complicated in terms of the specific mechanics. And so I I think people when they talk about divestment so far, because you know most of the group commenting on it are not steeped in the sort of Nuances of ownership transfer um, are, are are not looking at the range of options that are available in that situation and thinking about stock implications and also regulatory implications. So, like, what are the divestment options that would actually satisfy the government? Right.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it, and I guess we'll 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 see as this unfolds. So I want to touch on. We only have a few minutes left, and I want to touch on like another, unfortunately, very large topic uh, which yeah. is like Section two hundred and thirty. Now, so yeah. you you and uh, in, in, in particular. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to avoid having a large discussion because we'll stay here way too long. Uh, but you wrote a piece recently for Law Blog, which is a very well followed, well read uh, blog about
0: uh, yeah, Lawfare. Lawfare,
1: yep. Uh, lawfare, thank you. Um, uh, that uh, that addresses how Section 230 would, uh, which of course is the provision that protects uh, internet. Companies from being sued for the content generated by their users, yeah, uh, and um and also allows them to uh uh to uh, uh moderate that content. Um, how that would apply to everyone's emerging favorite kind of company, which is generative AI. Uh, so, of you know, yeah. course, generative AI tools like ChatGPT or now Bing Chat or Bard, uh, on and various other things um, have this ability to, you say, write me a, you know, I don't know, write write me a, a ballad in the style of, you know, um, whoever. Um, and it will go ahead and do that or, um, or draw me a picture in the case of a couple of other kinds of apps in the style of Picasso. And then it will do that. And so it raises a lot of interesting, uh, uh, questions about, um, uh, about rights, um, to that material and, yeah, and, and raises, as you point out in this piece, some questions about how, um, how, um, section 230 might apply to content generated by, uh, generative AI. So talk a yep. little bit about the, where you landed on that and what you think happens there.
0: Yeah. So, um, so, um, it's a super interesting issue. So, uh, section 230 has been referred to by Jeff Kossif, the, uh, internet First Amendment scholars the 26 world words that created the internet That's and really so that title yeah yeah and so the um, the idea is that the that liability regime has really enabled the technology to flourish mm-hmm. um, the liability regime distinguishes between ho- essentially hosts interactive computer services and creators information content providers if you're a host then you're not liable for content that other people post if you create the content then you're liable. And the language in the statute that is used to define if you're a content creator says if you're responsible in whole or in part for creation or development. And so the question that a court will ask is, is a service like ChatGPT responsible, at least in part, for developing the content? And my guess is that there will probably be disputes about that. It will depend a lot on the products, but I think some judges at least will find that that the the generative AI tool is at least partially responsible for developing the content and therefore won't be able to use Section 230 as a protection. So the question then is what happens next? Section 230 is kind of a routing mechanism for companies. So it basically results in kicking a lot of cases out before discovery. That is important because discovery is the phase of litigation when companies incur significant legal liability. So it keeps legal liability low, which a lot of people think Section 230 primarily benefits large companies. It actually is I think, I mean, I guess this is controversial, but but is primarily, I think, beneficial or more beneficial for smaller companies who are less well-positioned to bear legal expenses. And so if ch- if generative AI tools do not have 230 protection, then they will have to get to discovery m- more frequently in cases, and that will result in increased legal costs. And that will result in people like me from a policy team or people from a legal team who will sit next to engineers in meetings about product deployment and say, you can't do that thing because it's likely that we're going to end up in an expensive, expensive litigation. Yeah. Um, most users, like the reason that the people we are talking about who use TikTok, the, the reason that they're excited about it is because engineers engineers built an amazing thing, not because right. lawyers dictated what that thing would look like. And right. so the more that you have legal review narrowing the field of, what a product can look like, I think that takes a lot of innovation off the table. That to me yes. has massive implications. Right. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, it reminds me of the debate uh, that happened uh, in the recent Supreme Court hearings involving yeah. cases that touch on on Section two hundred and thirty. In particular, one of the uh, one of the things that the justices discussed in that, and of course those cases haven't been decided. But one of the one of the the uh, topics that came up. Was the nature of algorithms and whether uh-huh. algorithms themselves were considered uh, like content or speech? Right. So, yep. to your point here, if if people, so it's one thing if if you just say, uh, look, we have a platform. You know, Bob from Cincinnati wrote an obnoxious post, and like, yep. take it down or not take it down, but I'm not liable for that. But if, it, if the question here was, um, in those cases, was whether surfacing content uh with an algorithm whether that is a form of content creation in and of itself and so that seems to be this that kind of echoes a little bit with what you're describing on um with generative ai which is yeah there's a corpus of information uh right it's the training model and it has lots of stuff in it like let's say you know basically the internet and um and then it's about the way material is surfaced through the question you ask and through the answers that are generated by the algorithm. And it would seem like that's the nut of the problem right there.
0: Yeah. And so the way Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch actually asked the question which got at this in the in the case, in, in the um, in the oral argument, he basically said, so hosting is clearly protected. And then he said, but in generative AI clearly is not. So what we have with algorithms is something in the middle. So what do we do in this middle situation? And I think that that to me is reflective of this. I, I don't I guess I should be hesitant of calling it a problem. But we're at this moment where we have this new technology that won't benefit from the kind of liability regime that I think has enabled the internet to flourish to date. And so the question then is like, well, is that good or bad? And there are a lot of people who think it's good. I mean, you you know, the letter last week from zillions and zillions of people saying slow down with the deployment of this technology, including Elon Musk is one of those zillions. Um, slow down the deployment of the technology. If you want it slowed down, then this liability regime will deliver that. It will limit the innovation potential for the technology. Um, I have a lot of fears about slow down, actually. So I think slow down probably hurts good actors relative to bad actors. So it mean. I mean, we we're talking about TikTok and national security fears related to to, to TikTok. I think, but there are other companies in other places that will not slow down, even if some large american companies do um and 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 my guess is this technology is going to be more beneficial than it is harmful i may be totally wrong about that but right now there is sort of this enterprise which is let's figure out this crappy thing that chat gpt can do and then let's talk about how crappy that thing is and <laughs> that's just i don't think that's very interesting and i don't actually think that's really honest in terms of thinking about the technology, of course it will do terrible things. It will do any number of terrible things. It will do a lot of like disappointingly mediocre things. You ask it to tell you information, you know the information is is you know X information is correct. It gives you Y. That's disappointing. That's not really what technology that's not that, that, that's like saying that Facebook is just about poking. It, that is taking sort of one thing right. and a very narrow use case. And that's not what will be interesting for the about the technology. I think it will probably be, a if deployed at its potential, it could revolutionize access to information, um, access to socio-political and, and economic rights. Um, it can change how people can have an impact on the world. I mean, you, you're a writer. You, you have profited in your life, as have I, from the ability to translate what's in your head onto a page. One thing that I have, and I've always been told, that's a good skill to have that enables you in a market, in employment market, to have advantages relative to people who struggle to write. We, you and I are going to have our business model undermined because there are people I think who probably have um, incredibly important ideas to communicate who struggle to do it sometimes in writing. Right. And generative AI will shrink that gap and will make it more possible for someone who has an idea to achieve a thing in writing. That maybe was left to a, a smaller group of people historically. That feels to me to be totally revolutionary and and to be democratizing and um, and to promote equality. And that might maybe the benefits of all that are outweighed by the possibility that you know ChatGPT tells you how to build a bomb, and you know there are all these other problematic use cases. But it's not so simple as just saying, "Oh, look at that crappy thing," and thus the technology is bad. And so slow down is premised on the assumption that. That the technology is bringing more harm into the world than benefits. Well,
1: and and to your point, um, if OpenAI and Google slow down, um, I'm not sure that Baidu does. So, like the
0: yeah, and what does slow down even mean? And what are we going to figure out in six months that we don't know now? I mean, I, I also like I I have been a big advocate for experimentation in the technology sector. It's really weird that that it is viewed incredibly negatively, but in other fields we do experiment all the time and we learn things through experimentation that are helpful so there are sort of what i would say is sort of trivial examples like um in sports we learned through experimentation and data that three pointers are worth more than two pointers and basketball was revolutionized as a result of that insight that's kind of a trivial example but experimentation matters and has influence right in medicine We have vaccines because of experimentation. We literally test a thing that could kill you in order to save lives because we know that the testing in the long run will result in more lives saved. In technology for some, like we have COVID vaccines because of that premise. And we had, I'm I'm a parent to young children, parents of young children were advocating aggressively for more, for quicker, faster trials so that one-year-olds could get access to vaccines as quickly as possible. That is experimentation on children, literally. in life or death circumstances. But in technology, we say, this is so important we can't experiment. And so I think slow down is kind of the opposite of an experimentation mentality, which is the mentality, I think, that will enable us to understand, okay, what works about this technology? What doesn't? What are the things we need to adjust? How can we strengthen it over time? Because that's the goal. It's not, we're not gonna stop it. We're just gonna make it better. And enabling best actor companies to trial things with hopefully as much transparency as possible so that we can learn and then improve I think is I think is a much more desirable route.
1: Okay, one last question because we're way over time now. Uh, um, is there? It's so early. ChatGPT got introduced last November, so it's just been like a few months since we've all started having this conversation. Congress tends to move a little slow. Is there any? Uh, is there anything brewing on the regulatory front? on AI at all
0: yet? Um, I mean, there's the AI Act in Europe. I, I actually, I should be closer to that than I am. Um, I, I can't speak in detail about it. But my, my understanding is that the new technology has caused a refiguring of what the specifics of that regulation should look like. I, I don't know of anything specific in the US. I mean, my guess is, as with lots of tech things, that Section 5 of the FTC Act will be the thing that's used most robustly. And I think there are, there are people on both sides, actually, on the industry side and on the advocate side who are disappointed by Section 5, or, you know, think it's not an inappropriate tool. I, and I think that's probably right. Like, I think having um, clear regulatory guidelines would be helpful, and Section 5 is, is incredibly broad. But the basic idea of it, which is, if you promise a thing, you got to deliver the thing, you can't act in violation of your promise. That, to me, I think makes a lot of sense. And that's a good way, I think, of pushing companies to make commitments to consumers that make sense and then following those commitments and you know I think that's that's the right way that is, that is a good way to govern the technology. What I would like to see just you, you asked kind of what's likely this isn't this is like academic y this isn't what's likely but um, in certain fields like fintech there are there's this model now called a regulatory sandbox that has uh, Singapore used it, UK used it. And now a number of states have been implementing them and it basically gives you a ability to trial a new technology or a new product in a kind of time-bound and quote-unquote safe environment so you sort of you have to meet certain standards to be eligible to participate in the sandbox then if you test a product in the sandbox you can't the attorney general can't file a lawsuit against you you basically as long as you're within the following the terms you are able to test this product. And then the expectation is that you provide some transparency about how that test is going, again, to enable people to learn. I think that would be a fabulous model in this area because it actually incentivizes companies to participate. They wanna participate because they get the safe harbor. And then as a result of that, once they're in the bounds of this regulatory sandbox, then they're responsible for producing some data that enables us to actually learn some things. So, So my point about generative AI is not that it's harmless. It's just that I think the benefits will outweigh the harms and I think over rotating on the harms will result in actually diminished value for society in important ways. A sandbox would be the perfect environment to learn to get some data to learn about that to actually really understand specifically how those costs look relative to those benefits. Okay.
1: Matt, we are over time. Thank you so much for Thanks. a great conversation, and I hope you'll come back and uh, we all. We, none of these these are still uh, very much undecided issues, so I hope you'll come back again and. Uh... Uh, join us for another session. Uh, thanks, to. To our, thanks to our audience for joining in as well. Um, please join us again tomorrow. Uh, Market Watch, spe- uh, Market Watch special edition for Financial Literacy Month. Market Watch personal finance uh, uh, reporter um, Arty uh, Swaminathan. I'm sorry if I messed up her name. Um, we'll speak with TransUnion's Margaret uh, Margaret Poe on how credit scores work. Thank you all for being with us again, and uh, be well.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.